At Urban Farm Podcast, we are all about education, and April is Foliar Feeding Month. Have you heard of it? It is a super simple application of spraying liquid organic fertilizer on your trees and garden plants. The leaves, branches, and trunks are incredible at absorbing nutrients. And if your soil isn't great or your pH is off, foliar feeding is a quick and long-lasting fix to get your plants the nutrients they need. Want to learn more? Join us for our free online webinar on how to apply this amazing process to your gardens and fruit trees. Visit urbanfarm.org to sign up. That's urbanfarm.org. Greetings, urban farmers, gardeners, and healthy food visionaries. Farmer Greg here, and welcome to the 563rd episode of the Urban Farm Podcast, where every day we work together to educate and inspire you to become part of your food revolution. Welcome, welcome, everybody. Greg Peterson coming to you from the urban farm in the heart of Phoenix, Arizona. And I am here with Bill McDormand. Welcome, Bill. Hello, hello, everybody. Man, these months fly by. Can you believe it's been a month already? <laughs> no. <laughs> <laughs> right. You know, it's all the same. I think that's part of the COVID curse, right? All the days start to look the same. The weeks just melt into weeks and months into months. It's amazing. Yeah, that is the case. Bell did some really good writing about what we're talking about tonight. You're going to join Bill and I. And yes, seeds can be exciting with Bill and Greg, and we'll tell you why. Uh-oh. Do we got that one covered, Bill? <laughs> the magic, the resilience, well, and the adaptation all make for an amazing adventure as we strive to improve our seeds where we are and develop more delicious food. Uh, this Tuesday night, Bill and I will clue you in to a unique opportunity to find starter seeds through a program called Seed Up in a Box. There you go. Let's start, Bill, just very basic. What goes into the cost of a packet of seeds well i so let's a little context for that i was right, you know i was um in the seed business for um i owned my own company for 28 years and had something to do with um, buying and selling seeds for about 40 years and so and when i say that i this is not industrial scale i didn't work for one of the big you know huge companies ever my goal and the whole thing was um uh, making sure everyone had enough diversity in each region. That's what I dedicated my adventure to. And so um, I was always working on a smaller scale. But small scale is where you can start to talk about how most people get their seeds because most of us get it in a really small packet. I think I was trying to look up today how many millions of packets of uh, seeds are purchased each year in the United States, but it is millions. I mean, I met the people at Lily Miller Seed company it's a chemical company and they had a seed mm -hmm. mine and they used to package five million packets a year and that was just one small company for the northwest and nobody's ever heard of wow you know and five there's million packets yeah you know there's you know i used to read i read in seed world once where they built a new four million square foot facility in the midwest to package seeds for 200 different companies and what they would do is bring semi-truck loads full of seeds in one side and then semi-truck loads full of packeted seeds going out the other side. And they were all the same seeds, and they were going to 200 different compa uh, companies to 200 different you know, parts of the country. Mm -hmm. And that number of companies has come down even because most of the packet seeds are sold in big boxes now or chain nurseries. And so they, you know, it's, it's, it's better for them if they only buy from one company to do all of those things. And so as we used to say, you can walk into the Home Depot in Florida – and buy the very same packet of seeds that's in the Home Depot in Montana 
or is in Phoenix, even though they're two, they're three totally different you know climates. And so by the time seeds get into a packet and get on a shelf and are priced for most gardeners to buy them, about 90% or more of the cost is in the packaging and in that system to get them to you. In other words, there's never more than three or four cents normally. I mean, it can be a little bit more depending on loss leaders and things that people like, but you know, worth of seeds in a packet. And yet we spend a dollar, two dollars, three dollars, four dollars for a packet of seeds. And so that's just the reality of how the system works. You know, the farmers are contracted to grow them for huge, big operations that then wholesale them to uh, mid-sized wholesalers. And those mid-sized wholesalers then sell them to packers. Some of the mid-sized wholesalers are packers themselves. Sometimes they just sell them to packers. Packers are the companies that you may have heard of. You know, they're they're the companies like, you know, the old um, school companies like Burpees or I'm trying to think of some of the others or um, some of the new modern companies, you know, even like Johnny's Selected Seeds and High Mowing and Territorial. And so the big myth for most gardeners and they, and, and they wake up to this at various stages in their gardening careers, is they realize that when they buy their packet of seeds, the people that sold it to them have no real relationship to them either, usually. Like Lily Miller never did grow any of the seeds of those 5 million packets that they were selling. In fact, a a friend of mine who worked for them one time took a a bowl of tomatoes into their board meeting and put it on the table. And one of the the board members of Lily Miller, this chemical company, said, well, that's really nice. What are these here for? And he looked up and he said, these are your tomatoes. There's one each of the kinds of tomatoes that Lily Miller is famous for selling in their packets. And none of the people involved had ever seen or heard wow. the names of those those seeds. And so and that's an extreme example, but that's not an unusual example in the seed industry. And so we're all getting seeds that have run that are run through these huge, you know, roboticized systems now. Most of most American gardeners are. That um uh that, you know, there's three cents worth of seeds in, three or four or five cents of or, seeds worth in or, or less. The last packet or less. The last packet of basil that I bought contained about 20 seeds. I think it was $2.99. And our, I think our scoop of basil seeds for the Great American Seed Up, which we're going to tell you about in a little while, is four grams. And I think what I read recently was that there are 600 seeds in a gram. Right. Yeah. Wow. Yeah. And our packets, our packets at the Great American Seed Up and Seed Up in a Box are running about 75 cents. Right. These jumbo packets. Yes. Well, you know, so Greg, you're, you know, you and I are into permaculture and local, you know, we don't believe that these long global supply lines are a good thing to depend on. I mean, it's nice to get diversity wherever we can get it. I'm I'm a big fan of get your seeds wherever you can and whatever lights you up, get them and trade them. That's all real fine and good. But what happens if we don't have access to all of those things? I mean, starting in the 70s and then the 80s, especially in the 90s and the 2000s in the U.S., the seed, you know, the part of the seed industry that I was a part of started to grow and change things. And so, you know, companies like Johnny Selected Seeds um, became famous because they would actually grow out and trial everything that they would sell. I mean, that was, you know, in the, in the modern era, that was pretty rare. And they were kind of in a unique cold climate, short season things. And that's how I grew up in Idaho. So I was really drawn to that kind of stuff. And they were really great. But Johnny's never has grown more than some, at some point, somebody told me 11% of their own seeds. And now it's way less. 
Right. And in fact, somebody told me the other day that 75% of their seats are now contract grown in China, as many of the other companies have gone. 75%. That's unverified, but that's, that's the first time I've heard a number. They're a $60 million company. Mm-hmm. You know, they were, when John, Rob Johnson was ready to retire, they had offers from Harris Moran. That was one of the names of the other companies I was thinking about, a large wholesale packer that sells seats to other people that pack as well as their own lines throughout history. And so, yeah, that's big. You know, and Tom Stearns is a good friend. Rob Johnson is a good friend of mine. Tom Stearns at High Mowing, they're a great company. And they're, they've done a lot for organic, certified organic seed. But when I say 75% of their seeds are being grown, I mean, I'm talking about the certified organic ones also. There's nothing like local and resilient to our continent about their distinctions anymore. And so that leads to the problem. Where are we going to get our seeds as we look at the future? And I think that's what you and I, you know, we can tell the story of the great American seed up because so we're living in and around Phoenix, Arizona. There's what, four million people there now? I mean, four point eight. Six or eight years ago there were yeah, there were three million, so now we're at four point eight, growing fast, and uh no seeds. No seeds being produced, little or no seed being produced for that area, in that area. So we're starting from scratch. I mean, it means a couple of things. One is that there's no research being done on varieties that will grow in that climate anymore. No local adaptation happening. The big companies that own the world seeds now are targeting areas where they can grow the most seed and the most crops, not where people are ending up living like Phoenix that are getting hotter and hotter and drier and drier every year. I mean, wouldn't it be nice if we had people growing and saving seeds in that hot, dry climate and adapting those seeds to those changes. I mean, that's what we need. And so you and I, Greg, we thought about, well, so what we really need to do, it's just a real simple math problem. How do we get massive amounts of seeds into that area and teach as many people as we can to grow and save their own seeds so that we can catch up and start to do this work again? And if you're going to bring in massive amounts of seeds, where do you find them? What varieties do you bring in? And so we've, we've been hacking through that problem and working on this for, what, seven events now over six years yeah, goes to try high. to do that. And, yep. Yeah. And we call it the Great American CETA. When it, so <laughs> I, want, I actually want to tell a little bit more backstory. So I went to seed yeah, do. school in Tucson in 2011. It was over uh, summer solstice. I remember I was there on uh, June 21st. And you and I started having a conversation about what would it take to do a seed bank in Phoenix. And we decided that, you know, 1,500 pounds of open pollinated seeds, you know, like 60 different varieties in a freezer would do it, kind of. And then you may have been sitting back laughing at me, <laughs> but I did it anyways. And then we had a seed bank. But the problem was, is that one little seed bank in the middle of Phoenix in a freezer does not constitute enough seeds for Phoenix. Right. So fast. I mean, forward. I was really happy. Actually, you had some. Yeah. You know, because every little bit helps for sure. So fast forward to 2013 and you and me and Bell are having a conversation and, you know, we were on a trip somewhere and we, we, about 15 minutes, we, I remember we were on our way home and you and I and Bell had a conversation for about 15 minutes and created the Great American Seed Up. And that was over Thanksgiving and we launched our first one in April. And so the Great American Seed Up, basically what it is, is this great big seed bazaar with you know, we use a 10,000 square foot room with uh, last year we had over 100 varieties of open pollinated seeds in it, in it. And each variety has a popcorn bucket 
and a scoop next to it and a business card and a Ziploc bag so that people have their check sheet when they walk around the room and they walk up to Armenian cucumbers and Armenian cucumbers at, say, a tablespoon. They put a tablespoon of Armenian cucumbers in the Ziploc bag. They grab one of the business cards. The business cards has all of the information about that variety on the card so that it's basically the label. And you put that in, zip it exactly. up, mark and mark on your checkoff sheet that I got one scoop of Armenian cucumbers. Oh, by the way, it's uh, was probably a dollar and a quarter for that scoop. And how did we go about, how did you, you really did it, how did you go about designing the size of the scoops, Bill? Well, 40 years in the seed business. Mm-hmm. I knew what the what people would expect in a packet of seeds. There, you know, there's a range, but most, you know, most companies have fallen into patterns for how much you put of cucumbers, or it's usually about a gram mm-hmm. in most cucumber packs, that sort of thing. And so I knew those amounts, and I've been using them and dealing with them. And then so for the seed up, what we did was at least double that amount, and and in many cases do four x what people would normally get in a packet mm-hmm. of seeds. We just you know at least doubled. And so, I mean, what, you know, this system was set up to solve a couple of problems. One is that um, let's just get farm direct seeds. I knew where, I knew who was growing them. And I knew the, the consolidators that were contracting them to grow them, where the whole, you know, shebango starts, especially for open pollinated seeds, especially mm-hmm. for those land race varieties that would be the best ones available for us to start with. And so we just buy them directly, bring them into a hall, dump them into buckets, and make sure people got twice as much what they expected. And then we would we set prices um, based on, you know, in many cases, a half or a third of what people would normally pay. Because we could, because we're getting them farm direct. You know, we don't have to pay 90% of the cost in all those middle people and in all the packaging, right? Because yeah. people are packaging them themselves. That was the brilliance in this whole idea, I think. Right. Yeah. I was going to say they package them like mad. I mean, you know, last year we had over 800 people come through the room. <laughs> two tons of seeds, right? Uh, I th- probably closer to a ton, or but t- still, that's 2,000 pounds. Yeah, 2,000 pounds of seeds. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, so, that's pretty amazing. Yeah, so March happens, and then April happens, and we're, you know, we have our, we start having our meetings for the Great American Seed Up in February every year, just to kind of get a head start on it, and we, you know, in March and April and May, we were looking at, you know, is there any way that we're going to be able to put 800 people in a room in September? So we we jumped off and said, yeah, we can't do that. But what we did is we created seed up in a box. And basically the concept behind it is that we package the seeds inexpensively enough so that you can do your own seed up. Bill? Yeah, that's it. That's the idea. Well, you know, so... You know, we never started out to be a seed company. Right. You know, I mean, we could have done what everybody does and started a Southwest Seed Company, you know, but I've just done that for 40 years. And and there's a lot of advantages to it, but there's a lot of disadvantages to it. I mean, you know, granted, that's the only way most Americans know how to get their seeds is to buy right. a packet of seeds, mm-hmm. either mail order or go down to the store, you know. In fact, most people think that's where seeds come from. <laughs> right. Somehow they, they magically come out of the end of that 4 million square foot roboticized facility, right? I mean, it's like everything else. And so we didn't want to do that. And so, you know, the seed up is just the answer. You know, it's what Costco does. It's what these pop-up, right. you know, bazaars do that sell tennis shoes in the cities. I mean, we're learning how to get goods to people without all the middle stuff. 
And so people can get more of what they want and get it cheaper. And and so and then the other part of that is that our goal was never to make a lot of money on this and to start a business. It was to get Phoenix to have enough seeds that are grown here and adapted here. That's our long term game. Mm-hmm. And so that's why as with every seed up, you know, essential was the education. I mean, we just give classes all day long and how to do this, how to start your seeds, how to save them, how to store them so that people could come into this thing, get all their seeds for a record price, more than they could use for probably for the rest of their lives, to quote Greg Peterson, (laughs) and and then learn how to do it, feel confident walking out the door that, wow, I may never have to come back. That's a successful customer for us. It's not that we want to be there every year to give you your seeds. We want you to come get enough, learn enough, and help us solve this larger problem. That's what we were trying to do. And so, you know, we can't do that. We can't get 800 people in there in two days. We can't afford to rent the space over a long period of time to distance it long enough. So we decided to set up a system so that everybody out there that wanted to could do their own seat up. You guys figure out the distancing and how to interface with your pod or your community and keep it safe. You know, and in smaller groups, that'll be easier than it would have been for us with 800 people. In fact, exactly. right now, that's illegal in Arizona. I don't think you can have gatherings that big, over 50 right. people anyway. Mm-hmm. And, and so we've set up these bundles of seeds for you to buy that have the bags, have the cards, and have bunches of seeds. And we've done them in pods of 10. So depending on how big of a thing you want to have, you buy accordingly. If you're going to have 100 people, you can buy 10 of them. And we actually picked out the 75 best varieties. Um, most popular ones because we couldn't do everything. And you can buy what you want of those 75 or we prepackaged up in groups of 25, the ones we think you'll sell first. So if you don't have any time at all, you want to do a seed up, you want to do it for 10 people and you want to have at least 25 varieties in it. So people will come bang. There's you, all you have to do is go to the website and click buy gone sold. And we've even got a little book in there that tells you how to do it, how to set it up, things to think about. You know, it's taken a lot. We've learned a lot over doing this over the last six years. And it's just really, it's been great fun, but there's a lot to think about and a lot to do. So we make sure that we cover those bases for you so that you can get this going. And our hope is that the community will step up and start, you know, seed exchanges, seed libraries, community gardens, um, different kinds of community groups. You know, um, prepper groups, whatever. We're here to get you your seeds. That's our job. Excellent. So our starting, you know, our starting place for this is a pack of 25, which is $160. But that gets you 250 packets of seeds, and they're the jumbo packets of seeds. And so we're looking at 64 cents a packet. And if you want to do your own seed up, you could actually do your own seed up and double the price, and people would still get a screaming deal. So We've really thought through this well. Thank you for that, Bill. Well, you know, but thank you. For the first time in my life, I'm going to thank the centralized industrial seed system for setting such a high price point in their packets. All We're right. all used to a certain amount for packets. Yeah. So we can even do this, and there's still enough room in it so that we can make enough to cover our time and energy for putting all this together. And if you're a community group and you need to do this as a fundraiser, you can make some out of it also. And everybody still gets twice as much seeds as they would normally. They get those hand-picked land race varieties that are the best ones we can find in bulk for this area, for your area, for any area right now that will get you down the road to growing and saving your own seeds and adapting them to where you are. 
I mean, that's the beauty in these old land raised varieties like market more cucumbers. You can take them to Montana. You can take them to Florida. You can take them to Arizona. Now, is every seed going to give you the most cucumbers you could ever get? No. But as you grow them out and you look through and you find the individual vines that produce the most for you in your area because of the variability still in these varieties, you save those seeds and you start changing that variety to a desert adapted market more. And we know that that process can happen in one year. There have been tremendous breakthroughs in science and genetics in the last 20 years around epigenetics. We know now that a plant doesn't have to change its whole genetic DNA to do this adaptation. It can actually turn on and off genes by rolling it up using things called histines in one year. So in other words, if you plant your, your market more cucumber in Phoenix, and it gets really friggin' hot like it did this year. How many uh, 110 degree days did you guys have over this year? Our our previous record was 33. All right, so 50, and the plants are going, ah, we're going to die. So what does it do? It starts changing itself. It starts rolling up its DNA with these histines. The DNA of those things for the stoma that allow it to transpire more moisture and because it doesn't have the moisture and it starts shrinking its leaf size. It can change itself and do all sorts of survival things in one year. And what we know now is that if it goes to seed and you save those seeds, those seeds have some of that stress resistance built in. In other words, papa and mama plant go, man, our kids don't have to go through this. We just went through it. It's probably going to be like this next year, so we're going to change our DNA so the next year you're ahead. And that's what we're talking about, people. We have the chance to to exploit and to take advantage of this adaptability and rebuild farming systems in every region of the world, and we're going to need them. That's our belief as permaculturists. We see the hurricanes and the hot weather coming. We see the political you know, uh, upheavals that may disrupt our supply lines to get our contract seed from China on time. I mean, those are things that worry us. And so that's why this whole event and this whole idea is so exciting, is that this is the, the fastest, quickest, easiest, cheapest way we have to get 4 million people up and running around this stuff. And you can do this wherever you are. Awesome. And it's the, it's the seed up part that they can do wherever they are. Yeah. When the and you can, you know, Everybody who does a seed up wherever they are could even find their own seed. You know, I don't pretend to know the best. I can tell you the best of what's available in bulk for us to do seed ups on this level. Mm-hmm. But there are smaller amounts of seeds. And since I've been going, you know, just in the last 20 years, there have been hundreds of new small regional seed companies starting. I mean, as a society, we're starting to learn this. We're going to get back to the way we were before World War II. Every area is going to have a source of seed. And so we can all play a part in that. And you, this might be a way to kickstart that idea in your community. How do you get everybody excited? I mean, the most, if, let me just tell you one thing I've learned in 40 years of doing this and teaching people how to saving seed. You can get all about new websites and all about new databases that link everybody together so we can exchange seeds. You can get all over new organizations and new non- starting new nonprofits. You can do all of those things. 
And they're at some point or another, they're all important in this chain of events. The most important thing is to get as many people as you can growing and saving their own seeds as quickly as possible. And if you do that, you'll get all those other things naturally. They'll just grow out of it. And if you want a worldwide network of people growing and saving and sharing seeds, great. But start at the bottom. This is basic permaculture. And grow it up from three people in your community or ten people in your community garden. Do it there. Do it well first and start sharing your own seeds to the people around you. And all that other stuff falls out. And the fastest way you can get ten new people growing and saving their own seeds is to get our little seeds up in a box package, which comes with a basic seed saving manual, which comes with the instructions on how to do it, which comes with land race varieties that have been proven to adapt to a wide range of areas. That's what, And you can get them for cheaper than you can buy these seeds anyplace else. So that's yeah. what we're excited about is we've kind of hacked ourselves into a system that really works. Awesome. So let's jump over <laughs> to questions. I think it was our June episode, Bill, that we talked about epigenetics, right? Something like that, yeah. Yeah, so Hannah wants to know, she says, which episode was it? it I believe it was the June episode. So if you go to urbanfarmpodcast.com and just look through the series, like I said, I'm pretty sure it was our June episode that the epigenetics came from. Ah, let's see here. Leanne says, you, go ahead. You can also go to the RockyMountSeedAlliance.org website, mm -hmm. and uh, we have a recording of Seed Social we did with Bradley, Dr. Bradley Tonneson, who is, or he came on and answered questions about epigenetics. And that, again, that was in the June 18th Seed Social that we do, did. So that's another place to look. And we are going to have him on again. So Yeah, he's well worth it. Christina from Pueblo, Colorado, I suppose that's Pueblo, Colorado, maybe, maybe New Mexico. Why do people ferment their tomato seeds? Is there is this a good idea to do with other fruit or vegetable seeds? Good question. I'll make the answer short. Usually when you get into our popular vegetable seeds, there are two methods to clean them and get them ready for packaging. The wet method and the dry method. Almost all of them are just done dry. And you can actually do tomatoes that way. You can just, if you're at a restaurant, you bite into a tomato and it's the best one you've ever had. What I do is immediately look for seeds. Um, put them in my napkin, roll them up, you know. By the time I uh, get home or remember them, they've way dried out, but they'll still work. The reason to do the wet method is that it more approximates what nature does. Think about it. Tomatoes are fruit. It's all wet. It's on a vine. It finally gets overripe. It falls to the ground and it starts rotting. And it turns out that there's a yeast and a mold that are pretty much built in to the process that start taking over. So what happens is the yeast eats the gelatinous cover off the seeds. That allows them to germinate. And the mold then that's in there, white, it's like white bread mold. It actually is like penicillin, and it treats those seeds with antibiotics. It actually helps those seeds to overcome almost all seed-borne diseases. Not all of them, but almost all of the ones in tomatoes. Never had a problem with a tomato seed-borne disease because I used the wet method. So that would be the number one reason to do the wet method. And it's pretty easy. I just did a batch of Punta Banda seeds today. You know, when I, and I ate all the tomatoes. I just sliced yeah. them at half of the equator and squeezed all the stuff into a jar 
and I let the jar sit around for two or three days, and then I filled it up with water. I water winnowed them, so to speak, and I just today poured them on a, a paper uh, plate, and I'll let them dry out for a few days, and I've got my seeds. So it's a pretty easy thing to do. Awesome. We got an email from Leanne today in my inbox. She says, I want to know how important it is to save seeds from multiple plants of the same crop. Good question. We don't know why, but one of the fundamental unanswered questions in biology, and this is, seems to be in all of biology, is that why does nature favor heterosis, it's called. Heterosis is a fancy term for having different expressions of a gene at locations on the DNA. More diversity is all you have to call it. So if you save seeds from more than one plant, you're bringing in more diversity. Each plant is individual and it's been through a different set of stressors. How do you know even in the same row if you haven't planted one of those plants in fossilized dinosaur poop? <laughs> you know, how do you know a dinosaur didn't go by there 100,000 years ago and poop? There's no sign of it left, but it's really a rich place. That plant will be different than ones in a different part of the row. And, and because of the role of the dice of sexual reproduction, you know, and and of natural mutations, um, it's going to be different. And so, you know, as a matter of course, we should always try to bring as much diversity as we can along the way. Now, there are some generally recognized parameters for that. And if you want the best place, am I back? Yep, you're back. Sorry about that. All right. Um, a book called The Seed Garden that was published um, jointly was published by uh, Seed Savers Exchange. And if you want to get into that book, it's like if you have to be a serious seed saver, and it's got all of the garden and grains in it, and a lot of the folk wisdom that's been um, captured over decades. I mean, it's a big textbook, basically. But in it, they have two numbers. One is minimum amounts of plants you should probably pay attention to to save seeds for your own garden or yard on a small scale, and that number you would need if you're doing it commercially, if you want to be really serious about doing it commercially, where uniformity um, and predictability are more uh, important. And so, you know, generally, you know, for things like tomatoes and peppers, it's like five plants, five to 10 plants. And that's if you're a serious seed saver. Most, you know, gardeners get by just saving seeds off of one plant and won't see much of a difference over the years. And so I'll just leave it at that. It gets into a complicated thing called inbred depression. And um, you can get into that if you want to be a serious seed saver. But uh, to get started, if you see seeds and you only get one seed from one tomato at one dinner party and you save it and it works, it works. And right. whatever you were after is probably in it because it's a tomato and it's a self-pollinating plant. So I'll just leave it at that. Awesome. We've got a, uh, an email from Peggy from Craftsbury, Vermont. For tonight's session, I, uh, I want to do as much seed saving this week as possible before the showers come next week. I'm in northern Vermont. And we've had frost already for four nights. Oh, my gosh. That's a dream, huh? Do I need to spread the seed out for uh, any amount of time to make sure it's dry before I store it away? And what's the best way to store it over winter? Glass jars, paper packets, plastic bags, and an ideal temperature to store them at. I'm going to twist your words around a little. It's not what you do, you know, or how long you do it to dry them. It's you want them dry. And you do whatever it takes to get that. Because <laughs> the mantra for saving seeds is cool, cool dark, and dry. dark, cool, dark, dry. And that can be hard. 
especially if you're having showers every day and your humidity's up. Mm-hmm. Vermont's a tough place to save seeds and because of that, so you may need some help. So moving air helps, having fans blow over your seeds, mm-hmm. um, laying them out so that they don't touch each other, that a lot of air can get into them and through them and around them, and then threshing them and or storing them on a dry, low humidity day will be your next best thing to look for. I mean, if you have a barn or a room and you can turn on a heater and dry it out in there and warm it up, you know, even if it is raining outside, then that would be an alternative. But again, you want to keep them as cool as you can. Um, The temperatures, you know, storing seeds in glass is the best, I think. Or, you know, they've got new really fancy impermeable plastics, acrylic plastics that can work also, but those are expensive and you're, you know, buying into a whole new plastic thing again. You know, glass jars are around. If you ask a restaurant, you can always find leftovers, even gallon jars or whatever. Uh, And so, so as I said, only package those up on a dry day. Or if you've got those leftover silicon, you know, little packets that come in everything electronic these days, you could save those up and put some of them in the jar. Most important thing as far as temperature is below 80 degrees Fahrenheit. You don't want to keep these in the in your house in Vermont near the wood stove all winter. You know, it's probably easy to keep them, you know, in the 50s and 60s, if not 70s. And those temps will be fine for them. I mean, if you want to get fancy, you can put them in freezers. Not necessary, but there are those that say the colder you make them, the longer they'll last. But, you know, there's a danger to that because if you start storing your seeds for the long term, like 10, 20, 30 years where you need a freezer, and you're saving them every year, mm-hmm. you're going to have way too many. It's the great <laughs> Peterson freezer problem, right? Right. Yeah. Share your seeds. Better you know, to, um, go ahead. It's probably better to use that time, energy, and money at this point into growing your network of seed savers around you so you can all do some of it and all share them. Mm-hmm. That way your community would be stronger. Yeah. Well, that's that was really the backstory behind how we got the seed freezer here and then Great American Seed Up was how do we create a resilient community of people that are all saving their own seeds? Right. And then well, share- and I think we still, yeah, go ahead. No, well, I was just going to say, and then sharing them. Yes. Now, I think we were getting mixed up with another emerging concept, and we're all just reinventing the stuff that many parts of the world had or have now, and we don't have. And that is a backup system, you know. And so, you know, having a regional seed vault where a community stores its seeds makes sense. And having that at really low temperatures can really make sense. You know, so that way, if, you know, the hurricanes start hitting Vermont, which is not, you know, it's unlikely, but not out of the question these days, or if there's floods or if there's fires or whatever it is, you know, and it comes through your whole valley and everybody at their homes loses all their seeds, where are they? Do you have a backup for that? You should think on that level. So having a regional backup center, where communities all get together and do that together becomes another community building exercise, you know, as well. But it also gives you a resiliency that you wouldn't have otherwise. And so that we're really in favor of that. Our our dear friend Andrew Mushita in Zimbabwe has helped organize three regional seed vaults in Africa where people don't have to walk that far, eat community stone, to put their seeds in them. And then each of those regional banks backs up each other's seeds. So it's like a double resilient system. And and that's going to a lot of expense and work to do that. But guess what? It's worth it. Try to grow all that stuff back out again. 
someday. And especially if you lose those varieties, they're priceless. Yeah. And so I asked Andrew, I said, so do you back that stuff up in in uh, Norway at Svalbard at the Doomsday Seed Vault? And I'll never forget his answer. He looked at me and he goes, Bill, you don't understand. You never back your seeds up or store them in a place that's too expensive for you to go check on them. Uh, it's that simple. Yeah. You can't all fly up there and look at them. So they've set up a system in Africa where they could literally walk to their regional banks to check on them if they need to. And I like that idea. Wow, nice. So Janelle has a very interesting question. And it would be interesting to, and maybe you know the history behind this question, uh, or maybe not. She says, I have heard that saving seeds from volunteer squash can lead to a toxic inedible squash. Is that true? And if so, can you speak a little to why? Of course I can. It's happened to me. It happened several times in the 28 years of my seed company. Several of my customers called. I, one woman called me, and she was, like, horrified. She thought she was going to have to send her family to the hospital. And what she was really uh, pissed about was that it ruined her dinner. And I said, what do you mean it ruined your dinner? She said, we had pork chops and mashed potatoes and salad, and it was a picnic, and I had big plates. And then I had zucchinis. And I had sliced them up and steamed them, and I put the zucchinis on the plates, and the juice ran in, you know, as it does, ran into the other things. She said that juice was so bitter that it ruined the whole dinner. Nobody could eat anything. Aww. And that was really the first time I'd heard about it. So I called up um, Holler & Company, which are the oldest family sea company, uh, family-owned sea company still going that does cucumbers, does the cucumbers and the millets. In the United States, they're in Rocky Ford, Colorado. Every other company sold out. They're owned by one of the big gene giant pharmaceutical or chemical companies. These guys are still a family-owned operation. And I love these people. And I called them up and I said, I'll never forget. I said, I explained what happened. And I could hear the guy take the phone away. This was back when we had phones, right, landlines. And he took the phone away from his mouth. And I could, uh, he tried to put his hand over the receiver and he yelled, we got the bitter gene. And I could hear people coming out of offices and all this stuff. And everybody was coming around because they wanted to hear the story. So here's the story. Um, the QQ Bird family all have genes to do this. It is done for pest resistance. And, and the original varieties of wild, what became cucumbers and squashes, um, um, have this gene expression. And it's what they evolved with in the wild to keep them safe. So animals, insects wouldn't eat them. It's he incredibly bitter. And so as we, we 10,000 years, largely indigenous women, probably all over the world, domesticated cucumbers, um, they selected for ones that weren't bitter, probably had to taste them, and only save the seeds from the ones that aren't. However, that recessive gene is still in the cucubert families, even in the most refined and selected lines in the United States today. In fact, they told me it's like one out of every 10,000 of them can show an expression of this. And so these guys were in this business, and they wanted to know everyone, wanted to document it. They, I had to give them lot numbers. They wanted to trace back to it. They were trying to even weed out them in this modern era. So that's So you're right. It is possible. It may or may not have anything to do with whether it's a volunteer. 
you know, as we allow things to adapt and we save seeds where we are, we're allowing things to, you know, revert back to the wild, so to speak, and use those wild tendencies to adapt and survive wherever they are. And so those are really great things, and we want those. And the bitter gene could express, and it probably has to get the story that Janelle is telling started. But it can happen through the most refined, sophisticated tea companies also. So just be aware of that. And so wow. just be aware. It's a, it's a highly unlikely thing to happen, but it can happen. Interesting. So I learned something new. This is why I love doing these. You know, we've done over 600 podcasts. Um, you and I have done <laughs> dozens of these chats. And a big part of the reason I talk to people and interview people is because I get to learn new stuff. So thank you so much for that. You know, it's really fun. I took Bell to visit Holler and Company years. This is decades later. And they're still a family thing. And they, they, uh, one of the uh, the cousins or something came out to meet me. It's in a little old house. They don't have big corporate headquarters. They're just in the buildings in uh, this little town of Rocky Ford, Colorado, along the Arkansas River. And so I tell the story. You know, they had made a an appointment and allowed me to come. In fact, spent the whole day showing me their fields and whatever. They took really wow. good care of us. It was really great. But I'll never forget when uh, we were there and I started telling my story. The guy goes. Oh yeah, you're the guy that called with the bitter gene that that time, and everybody there, 20 years later, still remembered my call and this story, wow, and this expression, you know. So that's how this works. I just wanted to give some context around how important these stories are and how this is what we all get back when we grow and save our own seeds and start passing them around. We learn our histories. We learn deep knowledge about them. We learn how they adapt. These are the things that we've lost when we just go down and buy a pack of the seeds, besides 90% of our money. <laughs> right, exactly. Well, uh, so and it's not necessarily toxic. It's just bitter then. Well, if you ate enough of it, it would probably make you sick. You know, toxics okay. are really weird. You could probably design a poison. Here's the thing about poisons like that. You will never eat enough of it to really hurt yourself. You might get sick, Yeah. but it is so bitter. You would never, you know, it's just, I've never heard of anyone expiring because of this. There you go. All right. Well, let's go ahead and wrap it up. So for more information on the Great American Seed Up, and we're packing seeds for the, for the Seed Up in a Box this Friday and Saturday. So if you want to get your order in, uh, you can do that at greatamericanseedup.org. Bill, tell us a little bit about... Rocky Mountain Seed Alliance. Give me one minute on Rocky Mountain Seed Alliance so people know. Well, well, the most important thing is that we're a new kind of seed conservation organization in that um, we don't want to uh, find and save the seeds that we're losing. That's the conservation ethic that we, that's propelled the World Seed Conservation Organization since the 70s. We, after being the director of, of one of those organizations, I realized that we don't have enough time, money, or energy to do that, to save enough. Because that, with climate change, that shouldn't even be our goal. We don't want to save the way everything's been adapted to the past because we're living our way into a new future. So we use all of our energy to teach everybody how to grow and save their own seeds and take care of their own. And so education is our thing. And we have a, a, a class on right now, a 10-week online course called um, Seed School for Farmers and Gardeners too, um, And it meets two hours every Wednesday. We finished one version of it 
but we've got nine videos up. We do it via Zoom, and it's, everything's recorded, and now the class can go back and see those videos. So it's not too late to get involved. And then the course includes one-on-one with um, Don Tipping, who owns Cisco Seeds, and oh, Casey nice. O'Leary, who mm-hmm. started Snake River Seed Alliance. So you have specific questions, and then I do office hours once a week on Tuesdays. And so you get one-on-one with it. We have hands-on. We've got all this stuff going. So if you really want to learn how to save seeds, and you want the background about it, want to be a great seed citizen. In fact, if you want to start your own seed company, because 13 of our students have done that, um, this is our latest offering. We used to do these courses live, and we'll go back to doing them live when we can. But this one, it's working out pretty well, you know, as I said, 10 weeks, two hours a week. So You mean in person? Yeah, it's a live two hour a week. Yeah, Zoom. Yeah. And then they're recorded so people can go back and, and look and <clears throat> do whatever they want to do mm-hmm. when they can. Excellent. Well, there you go. And where do they find out about that? RockyMountainSeeds.org. There you go. For more information on the Great American Seed Up, go to GreatAmericanSeedUp.org. And once again, Bill, another month down. Thank you so much for the great information today. Wow, thank you. Great questions, everybody. Thank, thank you. This is, as I said, I think this is one of the most important things we can do. And, and talking about it's fun. So right. good night, everybody. Farm out and we'll catch you on the flip side. We hope you enjoyed today's episode of the Urban Farm Podcast. Remember to listen for tips, advice, and resources to help you on your journey with urban farming. You can find us on the web at urbanfarm.org or send us an email to podcast at urbanfarm.org. In the words of Vincent Van Gogh, great things are done by a series of small things brought together. Be encouraged that with each lesson learned and skill developed, you are one step closer in the direction of your dreams. One of the first things that many of us learn when we start to garden is how to water and fertilize the soil. But there is an exception to this rule and it's called foliar feeding. You should foliar feed or water the leaves of your plant with liquid fertilizer when you want certain nutrients to be absorbed better. Not only are the leaves great at uptaking liquid fertilizer, if your soil isn't very good or your pH is off, foliar feeding can help your veggies and fruit trees quickly get the nutrients they need to thrive. If you're ready to start foliar feeding for maximum growth yields and quality, head on over to urbanfarm.org forward slash feed the leaves to see our selection of foliar feeding products. That's urbanfarm.org forward slash feed the leaves.